our stores have quite a lot of international workers and for them to be told, oh, you can't come back to work is really devastating for them. It really affects them. And they just need an extra shift a week. That's what they're asking for. Any dollar helps. I think that's what people aren't really understanding right now. Our workers are really struggling, really suffering, and we're trying our best to give them as many hours as we possibly can. We're halfway through the week. That was going to be a week of optimism and a gradual increase in diner numbers through Victorian restaurants. Instead, we're halfway through a week that's become very glum. As Melbourne's restaurants have been further restricted, it looks like the rest of Australia is just having one big party. South Australia announced yesterday that they were reducing the density limit. You're allowed to have one diner per two square metres. Melbourne's stuck at four. The New South Wales Premier has told her people, I call on all organisations not, not to interact um, with citizens from Melbourne at this stage. I feel like New South Wales has been waiting to say that since about 1835. But it's not a funny time for Melbourne restaurants. It's really tough. And hopefully it's not going to get tougher. Jason Chang is the owner of Carlia Restaurants at two shopping centres, Chadston in Melbourne's east, and Emporium in the city. He's also an owner of Yu Kitchen, a Chinese restaurant at Chadston. He has been doing it incredibly tough since January, when news of coronavirus first hit and customers just melted away from Chinese restaurants. Yu Kitchen will not be reopening, but Kalia is pushing on. Jason, have you got used to the goalposts shifting yet? Uh, yes, I guess um, every every week or so we're hearing uh, about new laws and legislation coming into and restrictions. So I guess we've become much more suited to adapting to the current uh, situation than we were last year or when it first started. So I guess you know it's not a shock to us when restrictions are announced. So I think in March when the first restrictions were announced, that's when it came as a shock because we only had. 24 hours to really prepare for it. But now it's uh, quite a different story. I think the industry is quite used to it now. Okay, so when the Premier announced that you weren't going to be able to increase your numbers to a maximum of 50, uh, how did that news land with you? Obviously, from an industry standpoint, it was uh, disappointing. Um, From a health and safety point of view, we completely understand the reasons for it. I guess it's hard because I think the restaurant industry as a whole, we have tried our best to maximise social distancing and really work within the parameters that we've got. And I don't think there were many cases in restaurants actually at all. And it seemed to be from what the Premier was saying that it was coming from uh, house visits more than anything else. So I think the industry really, you know, they stood up and did what we could to maintain a safe and clean environment for all of our guests and staff and you know we had to go out and spend our own money to get hand sanitizers to retrain staff on how to uh, disinfect surfaces properly and you know we're really operating in a very very tight uh, budget right now so to be told I guess within 24 hours that we can no longer operate it's hard and we understand the decision but I think the a lot of restaurants had to rehire or re-engage a lot of their old staff members who probably weren't on JobKeeper. And this was the opportunity for them to go back into work. And this is what was for us at Kalia. Um, our Chadston store would have gone up from, I think, 20 seats on the inside to 50 on the inside. 
And because we have an outdoor area as well, that could also theoretically fit 50. Um, so we had re-engaged a, a lot of our staff members, international workers and casual workers who were not eligible for JobKeeper. But today and yesterday, um, our managers had to call them with the bad news to say, oh, sorry, we can't get you back in um, until you know July 12th. So it, it was a hard, hard call to make to, to these workers, unfortunately. It's such an emotional roller coaster. I mean, it must have been so nice to be able to tell people that they had their jobs back and then to know that, uh, you know, on the converse that you have to give them bad news again so quickly. That just must be very emotionally taxing. Absolutely. I mean, when we first uh, reopened and the staff came in, they were so grateful just to have a job. And we we have staff who are working beyond the JobKeeper hours as well and, and, and payments. And we're very pleased about that. But I guess when you see their faces, when you go into these stores and you see them smiling and, and pleased to be back at work, you see that camaraderie, that family feeling now. They, they're all taking care of each other. And, um, you know, we had staff who were going out to do deliveries, but staff will be going, oh, you know, I know you didn't get many hours last week. You take these deliveries and get paid for it. And I think a lot of people stood up. A lot of um, workers and, and staff members have really started to say to each other, you know, we're one family. We're here to help each other. And unfortunately, you know, with the restrictions staying on for longer, it has been emotional for them because, you know, they've been waiting. They haven't been earning incomes and international students especially have been suffering the most. They, we, Our stores have quite a lot of international workers and for them to be told, oh, you can't come back to work is, is really devastating for them. It really affects them and they just need an extra shift a week. That's what they're asking for. They're not asking for, you know, uh, a whole week of work. They just need that extra, any dollar helps. I think that's what people aren't really understanding right now. Our workers are really struggling, really suffering, and we're trying our best to give them as many hours as we possibly can. It's so tough. Uh, had you also ordered extra produce? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so we go through, you know, almost one and a half tonnes of uh, of pork a month uh, at our stores and we had extra wagyu and extra pork come through in preparation you know for increased capacity so unfortunately you know we're gonna have to work out what to do with that over the next uh, few weeks and you know this is also to support the suppliers i mean a lot of suppliers are really suffering right now as well um they haven't been paid by a lot of companies understandably for you know for months because of the shutdown there's no cash flow for businesses anymore so we place our orders in, try to support our suppliers who have been with us for years. And, and now, you know, we've got a lot of stock that we're just going to have to try to, to push out as much as we can through takeaways, through home deliveries, through you know, the current store capacity that we have. It's so tough. And, I mean, a lot of people think about the pandemic, I guess the impact really kicking in, you know, in the third week of March. But for you, it started much earlier, didn't it? Yes. Um, for us, it started, I guess, early January. Um, that's when the impact was really felt by us, especially our Chinese restaurant, New Kitchen. Um, we Chinese New Year tradition is our busiest day of the year. Um, we would serve about 200 uh, customers in an evening, uh, just one dinner session. And literally when news of the pandemic came out of uh, Asia, uh, customers rang within that day and we went from 200 reservations to 40. Um, so walking into the Chinese New Year period, seeing your restaurant at 20% capacity is, is, is really hard. And it got worse from there on in. I think from January down to 
March, we started offering special banquets and all that, but it, it still wasn't enough because, you know, your cost is still the same. Your cost of goods are still the same. Your labor is still the same. There was no government support back then for restaurants uh, and there was no rental support. So to operate at 20% capacity because people were scared to come out was extremely difficult for us, for our Chinese restaurants especially. And do you think that there was a racist element to the way that uh, people just stopped going to Chinese restaurants? Absolutely. I think at the start, what happened was is that people thought it was primarily a Chinese Asian based disease or virus. Um, and I personally experienced racism a few times. My staff have. Um, I was driving to my store one day and a man motioned to wind up for me to wind down my window, which I did. And then he started yelling at me saying that, uh, you know, you're the reason why the virus is here. Um, you know, it's people like you. And Little did you know, I was born here. I'm actually Australian-born Chinese. And, you know, I do, obviously, I am Chinese, but the judgment by this man in the car was only made to me because of my hair colour and because of my ethnicity. And, you know, that really shocked me. Um, and that wasn't the only time I heard it. My staff were walking to work in the city one day, a young lady, and she got just pushed to the floor by two young uh, girls. And racially abused as well and told, you know, oh, you're the cause of the virus as well. So, um, you know, we they came to work and they told us, oh, they were just racially abused. And I think the media doesn't really pick up on a huge amount of what's happening to the Asians here. Uh, people see generally the Asian community as, as model minorities, but, you know, we're also suffering from the effects of the racism that's occurred the past few months about the virus. I've been, you know, to a lot of places and I've heard racist uh, names being called towards other Asians. And, you know, we try to tell them, uh, tell people this is not on. But in the end, some people, the emotions get high. They, they just keep abusing us. And I guess that's also what led to the reduced patronage at our restaurants because of that element of being Asian. People just thought that, oh, maybe the restaurants are dirty. Maybe the virus is there somehow. Um, and I think it, that was the thing that probably caused the biggest issue for us early on in the year. Um, Kalia and, you know, we serve over 10,000 customers a week normally. And we still, luckily, we still had a lot of customers coming in, but a lot of people were scared still. Chadston and Emporium especially was, was quiet. Chinatown was empty. Um, I think you can still walk down Chinatown now and it's mostly empty. And a lot of the people in the restaurant industry in the Chinese restaurant industry have told me that they don't plan to reopen. Um, I think that's the sad part that's happening now because it's not getting better for Chinese restaurants, to be honest. Yeah. It's really terrible. I mean, it makes me really sad to hear that you or the, and your staff and really that anyone would be subject to to racism, I mean, in thought or in action. Um, I mean, how does that make you feel both personally but also as someone who's, uh, you know, as an employer of people who are experiencing that? I mean, it saddens you because everyone sees Australia as such a multicultural country, which it is, and I was born here and I can see how multicultural it is. But I think what happens is that when, you know, the government doesn't identify the issues that are here, instead, I think the tribal or tourism minister said that um, there is no issues here with you know racism against Asians. I think has he actually asked Asians this? Uh, most of the Asians I've spoken with or I know have said to me they've experienced it lately. 
And I think, you know, the government ministers are just hearing it from, you know, the advisors or, or whoever they're speaking to. But we really are facing quite a situation where people are being quite racist towards um, Asians nowadays. And it makes you sad, makes you sort of look at your, um, you know, what you've done, what you're trying to do for the community. Like, you know, I, I employ nearly 200 staff members um, from all races <laughs> and that's what I do. I reinvest my profits back into the stores to create more uh, jobs. And, you know, during the whole COVID period, we donated sanitizers, groceries to the elderly, to hospitals, to doctors, to medical clinics, to childcare centres. But people don't see that positive side of, of what we're trying to do for the community now somehow. They just go, well, you brought the um, the virus in, you're sending the sanitizer and masks back to, to Asia. Well, you know, we're doing what we can for the community, but also there's no appreciation in a way. I think that's how Asians are feeling now. Like it's, you're happy to accept us when we're spending the money, building stores, uh, pumping the economy. But we feel, I think we feel abandoned somewhat at the moment. Do you want to talk about it in a cuisine sense as well, Jason? Like, you know, perhaps the difference in the way a plate of dumplings and a plate of tortellini might be perceived. Mm. Well, I mean, at our restaurants, when we uh, our dumplings are handmade by our chefs, they come in at six a.m. in the morning and they're making the skin, they're rolling the skin out just like a, a pastry chef does. Then they're making the dump, uh, the filling, they're mincing the meat, they're adding the fillings inside, and they're using you know, hand making each dumpling. Um, and it's the same as an Italian restaurant when they're hand making tortellini. But what happens is that when I then put it in a steamer basket, steam it put it on the menu for $7, bring it out. People go, oh, $7. And they sort of calculate, oh, it's $2, a bit over $2 for a dumpling. It's not really worth it because they think, oh, I can just buy a frozen version over at Coles or Woolies. And I think that's the sort of view people have on Chinese food right now, that it's supposed to be cheap, like street food. When in fact, it's not. There's a lot of work that goes into creating these dishes. And the hard part is, is that because the general community views Asian food as street food or cheap food. People are not willing to pay. But when I go to Italian restaurants and there's $36 for tortellini, for six pieces of tortellini filled with prawn, um, well, I can guarantee you what's gone into that amount of tortellini is the same amount of effort, labor, and ingredients that have gone into my dumplings. But that's not really appreciated as much. And I think that's the issue that we're facing here. Um, people view Asian food too much as street food, when in fact it's not. Um, there's a lot of fine dining Asian restaurants. And look at Japan. I think it's got the most Michelin-style restaurants in the world. Um, and like I was saying to you the other day, rice on its own is very special. There's uh, different types of rice. There's the really high-end gourmet Japanese short-grade rice to the normal you know, long-grade rice from Thailand or, or Australia. And I think People's whole view is that, oh, no, Asian is just that cheap street food. And, you know, I'm trying to educate people to say that it's not. Uh, the virus that we use, we import from Japan, and it's not cheap to import this rice from Japan. I think we're looking at, like, $50 for 10 kilos, something like that, if not more. And this is the best rice that you can get. And we're trying to say to customers, well, there's a reason why you're paying a bit more for this, because we're really giving you the best ingredients that we can get. Um, and... 
it's a timely process. I think it would take a, a much longer time to sort of educate everyone, but slowly we're getting there. We're, we're seeing a lot more customers come into Kalia and really understand the difference now between what truffle oil is and what real shaved truffles are on truffle fries. <laughs> um, people don't realize truffle oil is primarily, you know, artificial. There's no truffle in it at all. Um, maybe there's some dry truffle at the bottom to give the effect that it looks like a real truffle, but it's not. And we're trying to educate people on that aspect as well. So, yeah, there's that education part of the piece, but then I guess there's also looking for efficiencies in your restaurants to try to, uh, I guess, find a little bit more um, profit in the business. What are some of the other things that you're doing at Kalia to uh, try to, to, I guess, stay afloat and thrive? Yep. I mean, we're looking at more technology, uh, technological I guess, uh, improvements towards the stores on how to improve uh, efficiencies and make it easier for the staff and customers as well. So we're introducing um, QR code ordering. So when you dine in our stores now, you'll use your phone to order. So you get your phone, you scan the QR code, and the menu appears on your um, your phone, and you order through the phone. So if you want to reorder or add more food, you just scan the QR code again, and you can order more uh, food like that. Um, goes straight to the kitchen, the kitchen makes it, the staff brings it out and you pay at the counter at the end. That's one element to also reduce uh, social contact between staff members and uh, and customers. Um, and that's what we found at our stores. Customers sort of, you know, they just want to get on with their meal. They don't really want that interaction anymore. So we've introduced that um, as well as a robot. We've purchased a Bellabot um, who, will, who is a very advanced and high-tech a robot waiter so it's, it's sort of like a cat robot where you can put the trays of food on the robot and it'll bring it direct to the tables through radar and, and sensors and wow customers can interact with it as well um is it bigger than a real cat how tall is is bellabot oh it's, it's oh it's quite big i think it's about one and a half meters tall so yeah it's a it's a big it's a big machine um it's it'll, it'll interact with you as well if you get in its way it'll, it'll tell you to move if you delay it It'll tell you it has to go back to work. Um, you can pat it, and if you pat it for too long, like a normal cat, it'll get annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it's quite. A, I'll, I'll bring you in once it's arrived, and uh, we can go through that and have a bit of fun <laughs> with the Bellabot once it's here. Oh, that yeah. sounds super exciting and super innovative, and I suppose making um, making an experience or a bit of a, a feature of, uh, I guess, reducing social contact, but also reducing staff costs. Um, That's right. It's yeah, it's I don't know, it's it's so clever and I'm sure it's gonna be really fun, but it also makes me feel a little bit sad when you say that people don't want that contact anymore. Um, do you think the hospitality experience uh, is changing for the for the long term? I, I, I think absolutely. I think um, especially for the premium casual dining um, uh, market, I think people now are really more focused on just eating and, and they just want to spend time talking to their friends or their family who they're with, but they're not going to be that same level of social, uh, I guess, contact where they want to ask the waiter how their day was and um, what was happening. They Waiters are now wearing masks. Uh, in general, they, they also don't want to spend too much time standing there talking to people. Even though we do conduct temperature checks and we um, provide sanitizer for our guests on each table, um, you know, we do whatever we can to keep, the place is, is clean and hygienic and, and promote social distancing. But it seems that humans and the customers from a, from a general perspective are much more cautious than last year or before. And I think that's what's going to happen from now on. Like, I think that 
that's the issue of what the premier was saying. A lot of the cases were from, you know, home home visits, because in restaurants you're literally only meeting your friends. You're not actually engaging with other people. You're you're meters away from the nearest customer or table, and the waiters aren't standing there talking to you. So the industry is doing its best to um, support the restrictions, but also it's for our own benefit. We we don't want restrictions going any longer than they need to. Um, we don't want to have people sitting there next to each other as well. We want to, you know, get over this period right now. And it seems that people, you know, are much much less engaging than they were beforehand. Even during my retail section, people just don't engage anymore. There's no more conversations being made. Yeah. Wow. Doesn't sound like as fun and warm and cosy a world as it used to be. Yeah. I think I think it's a changing world. Yeah. Do you think that there have been uh, restaurants that have just been hanging on, waiting for the the um, diner limit to increase, and that this la- latest uh, pause will just really mean they close the doors and don't reopen? Ab- absolutely, absolutely. I think what people don't understand is that there's still costs for restaurants to pay. Um, there's still rent to pay. So no matter. It's funny because the government does announce all these support packages. Like, um, they, I think they guaranteed the loans and all this from the bank, and and the banks will provide upfront payment for JobKeeper. But they don't realize that a lot of it didn't happen. The banks aren't giving out loans right now. Um, a lot of banks didn't give you cash advances for your JobKeeper payment. So businesses are funding it from their own pocket, or owners are funding it from their own personal um, pockets to ensure that the business keeps going and. I think that's a lot of restaurants I know also didn't open because 20 people, they just couldn't survive on it. But a lot of restaurants, 20 people is 80 square meters of dining space. So even when they could increase to 50 people, they require 200 square meters of dining space. Um, that doesn't include kitchen. That's just the dining space for the customer. And a lot of restaurants aren't that big, except for the big group restaurants, because rent in this city is very expensive. So a lot of owners I've spoken to said that they can't rent it's not going to affect them even at 50 or 20 because they can only fit eight people in their restaurant <laughs> and there's no point opening. Yeah. Uh, so So it's the density and distancing rules that when they shift, that's when those people would be able to reopen if they've managed to hang on that long. Exactly. But I know a lot that haven't. I've been approached by so many real estate agents who said to me, do you want to take this space? Oh, this space, it's fully fitted. Um, you know, the rent is cheap. Just uh, do anything. At this moment in time, you know, no one wants to open new stores. Everyone doesn't know the current situation, what's happening uh, before they're going to consider opening a new restaurant or cafe. And um, I think it's just going to get worse, especially after JobKeeper ends in September. That's when a lot of restaurant owners will run out of that government package and they're going to find it difficult to pay their bills. And I think that's the issue we're facing. We're heading towards that edge of the cliff and people don't realise that it's coming pretty quick. <laughs> mm. Well, Jason, how are you feeling? Like, are you optimistic at all or are you just super stressed? I mean, how? Yeah, what's, how, what's your mood like? I guess my mood from March was stress to now it's come to a period of, uh, I guess, you know, I sort of accepted what is going to happen and sort of wanting hopefully – the population in general to, to adhere to all the social distancing rules and, you know, 
I try to encourage that in my own personal life and, and with my staff and with my customers and guests. And we're just hoping, you know, there's no second wave. And, and we are optimistic in that. I think, unfortunate as it is, with a lot of restaurants closing, that means there's less options for customers as well. So for the ones that do survive and are still around in September, October, December this year, they're, they're going to be thriving. And um, it goes to show my my Kalia stores have queues now for about two to three hours sometimes. Um, that's not physical queues. That's a uh, wait list queues. So we don't make people stand there and wait for two hours to eat. We obviously put them on a wait list and contact them once the table is available. But I think that's also because this – and that's talking about a Wednesday afternoon at two o'clock. People still in two hours for a seat. Great. Yeah, it's good, definitely, but the options are much less now. And it seems that it'll be like that. People want to spend, people want to go out, but the ones who do survive will be will be thriving. Um, so it, it's a bittersweet situation. There's a lot that I know are suffering, and they spoke to me personally um, about how badly they're suffering. They've, you know, they're asking for so much help, and they they just can't get it. Right now, customers just not coming and, you know, they can't open their doors. So, yeah, it, it's a very bittersweet situation for a lot of people right now. Um, you know, I can't wait to open my doors, but I also know, you know, others who are just not even thinking about that. They're just trying to think how they're going to pay their bills next week. And with you Kitchen, the restaurant that was so devastated around the time of Chinese New Year, what's happening there? So we're going to convert that to a Japanese yakiniku, so Japanese barbecue and grill. Uh, so that's going to be where, you know, it's more self-cooking. So you have barbecue and shabu-shabu there. So you'll have the traditional Japanese shabu-shabu. For example, you'll be grilling your own wagyu beef on the charcoal barbecue um, or in the shabu-shabu soup bases. And the focus there is on the ingredients. So it's less staff intensive. It's more getting you to come in and really see, okay, this imported Japanese A5 beef and just grilling it lightly to a medium rare with some dipping sauces and we really want to showcase the ingredients there um local pork belly um i think we use st bernard's so you know we want you to just grill that try that with a bit of salt so upstairs we're converting to a more premium casual sort of environment get people in drinking um we're working together with other suppliers to really provide an environment where we can showcase ingredients um high quality ingredients but also at a uh, value affordable level where you know you can go there every week. We're going to have bento boxes. We're going to have gyukatsu where we have deep fried uh, beef steaks uh, in crumb, uh, panko crumbs where we slice it and you just grill it to your own liking on your own individual grills. Mm. So we really want to create a very fun, more interactive, but also personalized um, environment now. So high-end Chinese dining, I think, you know, I think like I said the other day, flower drum does very well, but I think it's very hard for other for other. Chinese restaurants to really target high-end spenders now and we're trying to move towards a premium casual model for upstairs, hence the conversion to, you know, we want to have bums on seats, get people back and get people interacting and having fun again. Do you think it's mostly the high-end part of your kitchen or the Chinese part of your kitchen that meant that that business was simply not able to reopen? I think it was a Chinese end. I mean, last year, during normal periods, we we had a lot of customers come through. So we'll be full house, you know, that, that's six, nearly 200 customers. So we'd be full house from Thursday to, to Sundays um, and people were willing to spend. But after that, for six months of, of not being able to produce revenue near anywhere near what we're doing last year has really devastated us. And 
a lot of it came down to being a Chinese restaurant. And now I see normal Chinese restaurants, people avoiding it. And not having the same number of international staff that I could have before because they've all gone home. Um, the prime minister said, if you can't afford to stay here, go home. So they all went home. Um, I don't have that level of uh, skilled labor in Chinese restaurants anymore as I did this time last year as well. So I, I absolutely think the Chinese aspect contributed to it, but also I think it's a shifting economy. We're in a recession now, officially, right? So people aren't coming out to spend that much money anymore to celebrate, to buy champagne anymore. And I spoke to uh, uh, Moit and Shandon uh, over the week, and they told me their champagne sales have been horrible because no one's been buying champagne. <laughs> um, people have been buying whiskey and wine to have at home, but people aren't celebrating anymore. So I think that also is an element. People just aren't willing to go out and spend to celebrate and have big parties anymore. They're in a more somber sort of atmosphere. Oh, Jason, I hate that. I'm coming to Kalia. I'm having champagne, and I'm gonna whatever Bellabot brings me on her little wheels. I'm I'm gonna eat. So tell me what I should order. I think um, you know at Kalia we're reintroducing something called the uh, the Ocean Dream Bowl. So that is a uh, fresh Tasmanian uni. Uh, with uh, Toro, that is from the Toyoso uh, Fish Market in Tokyo. And that also has salmon and Ikura from Yarrow Valley. So Ikura is salmon roe, fish eggs from Yarrow Valley. So that is just a real showcase of, of the best quality ingredients on Japanese rice. So I, I'd recommend that highly because when you taste it, you can taste the quality of ingredient that goes into that. It's a simple dish, but it's all about the quality of ingredients. With a matcha latte. <laughs> oh, what about my champagne? Do you think I could have champagne and a matcha latte at the same time? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I think have a, have a nice glass of champagne. Let's make it happen. Yes, I can't wait for you to come back. <laughs> Jason, I, I really wish you all the best getting through this tough period. Um, I love what you've done at Kalia and I look forward to heading back out to Chadston to what's the name of the, of the new Japanese grill? Have you got a name for it yet? So we call it Kalia, Kalia Grill. So it'll be a Kalia... It'll be Kalia as well, but different. So we want people to understand and know that he's also Kalia. <laughs> right. So I'm going to go to all the Kalias and um, I, I really can't wait. I know you're going to come out the other side flourishing and Melbourne is definitely the richer for your restaurant. So thank you so much for what you do and thanks for having a chat today to Dirty Linen. My, my, my pleasure. Thank you for everything you've done for the for the industry as well. It's been, it's been fantastic. You've helped us immensely. We'll drink champagne together. Definitely. Thank you, Danny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We wanna hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. <laughs>